Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When you think about the O.J. Simpson trial, what do you think of? If you're old enough, maybe you remember the car chase came before it, O.J. barreling down the 405 in a white Bronco, frantically calling 911 from his cell phone. Maybe you remember all the insanity of the actual trial itself. Or maybe you remember that something seemed to be changing during that trial. Celebrity obsession has always been a part of American life, but it seemed a little different, more voyeuristic, darker. My guest Sarah Paulson is nominated for an Emmy for her role as Marsha Clark in The People vs. O.J. Simpson. As the lead prosecutor in the trial, Clark was under constant scrutiny in the press. She's at the center of this new American obsession, and playing her made Sarah Paulson rethink what it all meant. I had been one of those people where someone sort of mentioned a piece of gossip to me and said, well, I heard and I just know this is true. And and I'd be like, oh, I bet it is. And oh, I'm sure she just did that. Oh, he just did that because. And now I think about how many untruths were told about Marsha and how many of them became to be part of the fabric of what we knew to be true about Marsha Clark collectively. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Sarah Paulson about her role as Marsha Clark on The People vs. O.J. Simpson. I mean, we'll definitely talk about that, but also we're going to do a little bit of this. Thrones, Thrones, Game of Thrones, Thrones, Game of Thrones. The whole time my wife hates me. It's going to lead to a divorce. No, she's wrong. She'll come to appreciate it one day when it's gone. And later I'll talk with the legendary songwriter and guitarist Shuggy Otis. We'll discuss his seminal album, Inspiration Information. He'll tell me how, instead of becoming a classic rock guitar hero, at one point, his friend Billy Preston called him up to offer him a job playing with the Rolling Stones. He ended up making an album with a style and a sound all its own. I wanted to have a record deal, and I wanted to be out there showing myself. Don't get me wrong. But I didn't want to be what they wanted me to be, which and I, I didn't fit in with the top ten. I knew it, you know. I could have written pop music, but I would refuse to do it. And I'll tell you about two Irish rowers who have managed to master something even more important than rowing. It's less precious than that sounds. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. My guest, Sarah Paulson, has been acting professionally since she graduated from high school. She's built a career that's full of distinctive character performances in movies like What Women Want, Carol, and 12 Years a Slave. She starred as Christian sketch comedian Harriet Hayes in Aaron Sorkin's Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, the drama set at a Saturday Night Live-style late-night comedy show. In 2011, she was cast in FX's American Horror Story, and she's returned each successive season as the cast are reinvented, playing new characters. Earlier this year, Paulson's career moved up a gear with the standout performance as prosecutor Marsha Clark in American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. The role has earned Paulson her sixth Emmy nomination in the last five years. Sarah Paulson, thank you for joining me on Bullseye. Thank you so much for having me. You were telling me right before we went on microphone that you are a relentless watcher of your own stuff. Typically, yes. 
So yes. why is that? Have you said that always been the case? It's always been the case predominantly because I'm sort of um, I'm I'm very hard on myself. I'm incredibly self-critical and I like to see I want to know what everyone else is watching of what I'm putting out there and uh, I like to be the one to decide whether it's any good. And specifically decide that it isn't good? And specifically, yes. Often I do decide that it isn't as good as I wanted it to be or hoped it would be. Sometimes I decide it has nothing to do with me. It's not my fault. It's how it was edited, <laughs> which is not really true. It's usually my fault. It's not good. Do you do you pay attention to uh, other people's criticisms of you? More than I'd like to. I think about that a lot, actually, because I, I think one of the reasons I'm so hard on other performances and other people in general <laughs> is because I am so critical of myself. So I'm assuming that everybody is sort of doing what I do to me, to me also. So why do you watch yourself? I think some of it was born out of pure curiosity. I mean, I wanted to be an actress since I was, I sort of joke, in utero. I mean, I think it was something that was decided before I even, you know, could have cognitive awareness of that even being a, a thing to do with one's life, acting. Um, so I think there's a part of me that's still in a sort of pinch-me phase. I can't believe I get to do it, and it's, and I get paid to do it, and I get to work with all these incredible actors and writers and... Uh, it was just a childhood dream. So part of me is sort of watching with my mouth agape going, oh, my God. And uh, Like just verifying that it's real? Verifying that it's real, yes. And, uh, and also just trying to get a sense about why it works or doesn't work so I can learn from my own <laughs> humiliating mistakes on a national level. <laughs> does, that, does that happen? Like, are there things that you've, like, do you notice that you're always touching your nose or something? Um, I don't have so many habits or mannerisms like that, although um, sometimes I do something weird. I mean, I'm going to say this, and then now people will. No one listens to this, right? I don't have to worry about that too much. <laughs> well, it's NPR's <laughs> least successful show, if oh, you're wondering. Great. I'm so excited. Okay. I have this tension I keep, I hold in my face sometimes when I'm acting really hard. When I'm really trying to make something happen, when I'm not relaxed, I do this thing completely unconsciously. But when I see it on film, I want to reach through the television or the, you know, movie screen and strangle myself. Because it just, I wish I would just relax. It's not rocket science. It's not, I'm not trying to cure cancer. I'm an actress. I'm trying to um, uh, put forth human behavior to the best of my ability and honestly as as honestly as I possibly can and you know I don't know why I have so much um I'm a very controlling person let's be honest <laughs> so I think you know I can see myself trying to will it to be so you know which I think could be a real um consequence of wanting something for a long time and having to wait a long time to actually have it you actually think you somehow in a magical way can will it to be so if you just really wish hard enough. You started working right out of high school. You got, mm -hmm. uh, shortly after high school, got an understudy job in a Broadway show. I did. Um, a Broadway play, I should say. And not that long after, you booked a part on Law & Order, which mm -hmm. all New York, and it was a, it was it's bigger than- It's a real than, rite of passage. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, bigger than most parts on Law and Order, you know, you weren't stocking a shelf and giving exposition. It was no. an actual important character in the show. When those things happened relatively quickly, um, what was it like to deal with the time afterwards when you had to deal with the reality of being a working actor, which is that those things don't generally happen? Yeah, I mean, it was quickly. strange. I was, I was sort of. Um, 
I do th- regret this now, although, you know, how can you regret the path that sort of landed you where you are if you're happy in that place now, which I am. But, you know, I didn't go to college and all of my friends were, you know, at the end of, of senior year, they were all taking their little summer break and getting ready to have that adventure. And I remember sort of lamenting the fact that I had made that choice, but not in a very deep way. I was 18 during 19 years old, so it was only... Um, you know, I just wasn't delving that deeply into those thoughts. But then six months went by. And to me now, the idea of not working for six months, at that time, it was it was just very clear to me I was never going to work as an actress the way I wanted to that first six months out of high school. And then I did get the Sisters Rosenzweig where I understudied the great Amy Ryan. And then I got the Law and & Order. And, and then it did. There was a, a very long lull after that that made me realize, oh, I guess... It was that funny thing of I felt like I should have been working right out of high school. And if I was going to really have a career, I would have worked right away. And I didn't. And then I got two great jobs. And then there was a nice long chunk of time where I wasn't doing anything. And then I got another few jobs. And then there was a very long chunk where I moved to Los Angeles and got a job right away doing a guest star part on a show called Short Live Show called Cracker, which was Josh Hartnett's first job, I believe. You kissed Josh I believe Hartnett. I was his first on-screen kiss. Yeah, I do believe it. I bet I, that was cool. It was great. I, I was, mean, I'm a straight <laughs> dude. I'd kiss Josh Hartnett right now. Let's do this. Let's do it. Yeah, he's pretty... Yeah, he went up to my boyfriend at the time, I remember, at the rap party and saying, I love, yeah, no, he, was like, <laughs> he just said, I love kissing your, gr- your girlfriend. It was great to kiss your girlfriend. He was just like, do you want me to punch you in the nose right now? And I just don't think he knew knew any better um, at that time. But it was just, it was that thing where I got those two episodes and then I, I did. not punch Josh Hart in the no, nose. No, but my boyfriend at the time, I think he fancied himself a, a tough guy. <laughs> but uh, uh, And he did it, Josh did it in such an unassuming way. It was clearly, you know, there was no... He wasn't after me at all. He was just sort of announcing that he thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> I was flattered and my boyfriend was furious. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just think that then I waited. It was after I moved to L.A. and I did those two episodes of Cracker. And I, I thought, oh, this is going to be when I moved to L.A. It's all going to be fine. And then I didn't work for a year. And that was really, really scary. I was 21 and, and I didn't really know anyone in Los Angeles. I didn't know how to drive. I had to learn to drive out here. Which was really scary. Growing up in New York, learning to drive is just really a useless skill, as very evident by the way people drive in New York. No one really takes it very seriously. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're an actor and you're asked to play the part of someone who's not only still alive, but also lives in the same city as you, how would you feel about it? Coming up, my guest Sarah Paulson will tell us how this weighed on her while she worked on her role as Marsha Clark in The People vs. O.J. Simpson. 21 is a time when a lot of people are reevaluating their lives mm-hmm. anyway. Were you looking at your peers and thinking like, what? why did I not, at the very least, go to acting conservatory, but, you know, maybe just like get a degree in English and a yeah. teaching credential? <laughs> yeah, I think there was that funny, weird, um, grandiose uh, that pendulum swing that happens a lot when you're young, particularly, I think, between I'm a piece of and I'm the greatest thing that ever happened. And, um, you know, I was just young enough to feel that it was all going to be fine, but I was scared. And it wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't ever reevaluate. I've never had that that thought of, oh, I don't want to be an actor, no matter how hard it is. Or, And there were many, many years following that. I had a good, a good jolt, a great infusion in the early, early days of my career where I was, I was getting work. And it was later when it started to become a little bit more dicey and a little bit more, um, I had a much uh, sort of tenuous hold on the whole thing and I didn't know if it was going to happen for me at all. And 
And it was it was scary later when I sort of thought, isn't this, there, there was no velocity to the thing. My career didn't have a kind of, um, I didn't get on the horse and it didn't tear, tear ass down the road. It wasn't like that. It was sort of like, oh, I guess I'll come over to the side of the road, eat some of these, <laughs> this food over here. Oh, I guess I should run for a minute. Oh, now I'm going to take a nap under this tree. It was just, you know, and I kept feeling that feeling of, I just wish somebody would let me ride that damn thing. I feel like I'm James Lipton right now, and I, sh- and I should be like, I should be like, can we talk to the career horse? Is the career horse here to talk with us? <laughs> you actually made a Hallmark movie yes. with Jack Lemmon at that one point. That was a big deal for me. I got offered that because of Lynn Kressel, who was casting director of Law and Order, and another TV movie I did with Kathleen Turner right after high school as well. There was, I'm saying, there was like a real pocket of time right after school where I did work before it kind of fell off the table. And the Jack Lemmon thing was very big deal and very exciting because I was offered it. I didn't audition for it. I got a phone call saying, "Do you want to be on a plane in a week to go do this two-hander essentially with you and Jack Lemmon? And you'll get paid a decent amount of money and you'll go to Vancouver. And I had never been to Vancouver. And, you know, I had to get a passport. It was all very exciting. A two-hander being a, a show or a play with basically two characters. Yeah, I mean, there were a few ancillary uh, characters. But, but it was really about the two of us and our friendship. And it was really something. What was it? It was called The Long Way Home. And it was a, sort of a road trip <laughs> movie. Um, it was, I don't know. I mean, it. It, it wasn't any great shakes, but it was it was uh but I mean it's you're sitting in a car or whatever with Jack Lemmon. yeah it was he used to carry chocolate uh in his pocket one on one one pocket he had a dark chocolate on the other side he had milk he knew I liked milk chocolate, so he would give me milk chocolate from his and he did say something to me, and I don't know exactly why he thought this because I've seen this movie, and I don't think I'm very good in this thing at all um <laughs> at all um but he said to me when we were finished the last day of shooting, he looked me right in the eye and he got a little teary and he said, pointed his finger at me and he said, don't you ever forget how good you are and don't let anyone ever tell you different. And I just was sort of stunned and I remember thinking, what a lovely thing to say. And I had thought about it a long time after to sort of comfort myself while I was lonely and crying in my house <laughs> because I wasn't working. I thought, Jack Lemon thinks I'm good and I wasn't good then at all. I was not good. It was not good. I wish we had a clip of that. It would be really, really horrifying for me to hear. I wish we had a clip of Jack Lemon giving yeah. you a chocolate giving from his pocket. From That's his unreal. Pocket. Yeah, he, yeah. I mean, if it was a Werther's original, that might top it. But like, <laughs> I love a Werther's dark, original. Dark chocolate in one pocket, milk, milk chocolate, chocolate in, in the, the other. other. Yeah, yeah. Give me a little square. Just... Did he just go through his life <laughs> Jack Lemoning around? He was like probably that? Jack Lemoning always, and I just was was. I don't think he did many things after that. I think it was one of the last few things that he did. And, uh, yeah. Was there something, was there some point in your career when you thought that you had made the wrong choice? Mm, no, no, but my mother, I remember my, I remember when I got, <laughs> this is going to become a therapy session very quickly. My mother, I remember when I got, uh, the Sisters Rosenzweig, which was my first real job after high school. And there had been that six month time where I was working at Circles Pizza for a day, I couldn't spell Parmesan. I quit. It was a it was a whole thing. <laughs> it was really tragic. And um, I was auditioning and not getting anything, and auditioning, which is really just the the way of the world for an actor, and certainly when you're starting. So it was no, there was nothing about it that was um, strange or other. It was what the experience is. But I think I just had this idea that I was just going to start working just simply because I was passionate about it and I wanted to do it. I thought that was going to be enough to sort of make that stuff come my way. And I remember, you know, just 
kind of pounding the pavement for a while, and I remember I got the Sisters Rosenzweig, and my mother came home, and I opened the door very excitedly, and I said, I got it, I got it, and she, her reaction was, oh, no, you're actually going to do this? <laughs> and it was that moment where I actually thought, well, am I going to do this? I am going to do this. I am going to do this. And she was being playful and sort of mostly thinking, oh, this life of, of potential hardship for you, of wanting something so badly and and there's so much rejection involved and so much of it feels so personal. It's not like you're going in with your cello and playing a piece of music only to be told, I don't like the way you're you're performing that. I don't I don't like I'm it doesn't doesn't move me. As an actor, you walk into a room, you 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 do your audition or um and you are presenting sort of your take on the thing. And when they don't want you or like you or choose you, even though the truth is it can come down to many things that have nothing to do with your performance, actually. But, um, you know, it can be height. It can be, you know, their best friend's sister's mother needs the job or something. The crazy things like that happen. But it's very hard not to take it personally. Um, I, I want to ask you about the people versus O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. So you have been working for a long time with Ryan Murphy, who created the show and also created American Horror Story, uh, on which you star. And... I wonder where the project was when you got involved in it. Like, what did you know about it? Uh, I was in the trailer, the makeup and hair trailer of season four of American Horror Story, where I uh, played the, the tw- conjoined twins, where I had the two, I had the two heads, and um, I remember Ryan very. Did kind you have of, like an apparatus on? Uh, at the we moment? had an apparatus. I did not have an apparatus on at the moment. I tried not to wear it when. Uh, whenever I was not being filmed because it was very heavy and it really wreaked havoc on my neck. We really only wore it when we uh, did high wide shots because they didn't want to pay for, um, you know, the special effects stuff. It was very expensive. Or if they were ever shooting between us, I would puppet one side of the head and the camera would go between us if I was doing a scene with Jessica or something. And But typically there was nothing there and I would just have to act as if there were and then they would do the thing. But anyway, we were shooting that. Ryan Murphy had come to New Orleans where we were shooting and he was not directing that particular episode, but uh, he had come down to see us and he just said, I don't know what season five is going to be yet. I don't know, but I do have this idea. Uh, He didn't have the idea. What he said is, I have this idea about you doing Marsha Clark on The People vs. OJ, this thing I'm, I'm doing next. But I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. What would you think about that? And I said, well, God, I mean, it's a great part. I'm, you know, I would, Love to do it. And then I heard nothing about it for six months. And I thought, oh, that was just one of those things where a writer has an idea or, or you know, and I just thought this is never going to happen. And then I got a phone call from him saying, I'm going to send you the first two episodes of OJ and I want you to read them and call me back immediately and tell me if you want to do it. But it doesn't really matter if you want to do it because you're going to do it. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I read them and they were great. These two great scripts, first two scripts were written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski and they were fantastic and sort of a lot of weird black humor. And I don't mean black humor. That's really just not the right thing to say. Dark humor. Yeah. Dark humor. God. You're all right. All You're right. fine. <laughs> Will you hold my hand? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a dark comedy. It really was. And, um, uh, in its in its way, it had a lot of humor and a lot of. Um, it was just I thought it was really really great, and then I was filled with nothing but abject terror because I thought I can't do this. Uh, there's no way I can do this. It's too scary. The responsibility is too great. People have too much of a of a, an immediate visceral. Uh, image that they call into their minds when they think of Marsha Clark. I will be, you know, fighting such an uphill battle before I even begin. And you can't even, I mean, the the thing about, I think, uh, a biopic generally is that 
You know, when you're representing someone who people are familiar with, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Johnny Cash or whatever, Mm -hmm. as an actor, you can, like, make a couple of choices to kind of protect yourself. You can do an impression of that person that is familiar to people, and people will get a kick out of that. Like, people always like if you actually do the voice or whatever. Yeah, that's why it's like talk show bits. People think it's hilarious. Yeah, Yeah. it's, it's a blast. Yeah. And then, you know, when you're dealing with how do I represent this person that is a real person in real life, you can make the choice and, you know, the people who make the thing can make the choice. All right, what we're going to do is make this person a relatively unambiguous hero. Mm -hmm. And there's no part of this story that is relatively unambiguous. Mm -mm. You know, that's one of the stomach-churning parts Mm -hmm. about this episode in our history is how hard it is to put a finger on what story we can tell ourselves about. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're, you have this character where you have to represent a lot of different things. And this is a woman who's alive and in the world. Yeah. And I thought about that every day. I really did. I mean, I thought about how young her children were during the trial and how now they were grown and probably understood things about it that they couldn't have possibly held at that time. Um, and just the idea of Marsha having having weathered something 20 years ago that was quite harrowing in terms of personal attacks and uh, sort of relentless scrutiny to think that 20 years later she was going to have to go through that all again. Um, and I'd only read the first two scripts. I didn't know where it was going in terms of what they were going to give me to do um, and what kind of Marsha Clark they were going to put forward, you know. So I didn't even, after reading the first two, know for sure that it was going to be something that she would be not horrified by, just simply by virtue of, you know, you think about it, we live in Los Angeles and you drive down Sunset Boulevard and you see posters and billboards of, you know, to think about her just driving to the market and seeing... OJ's face everywhere and the people versus OJ and you know it just buses and magazines it just all of a sudden felt like god I I'm going to be part of making her have to go through that again and and I didn't I didn't even know her I didn't meet her until way way later I mean we were almost done with the thing before I sat down with her so you know but but right away the point is is that right away I felt an enormous responsibility and actual fear that I was going to get it wrong and disappoint her or do the the worst thing I thought could ha- that would happen would be if I added salt to the wound if, if something that I did or some part of my portrayal made anything worse for her I just thought that would be something really hard to live with so it was scary has there ever been a tv show that you can't not sing the theme song to when it comes on even if it drives the people closest to you completely insane coming up Sarah Paulson and I both tell you what that show And that song is for us, plus an impromptu musical performance. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from Blue Apron, who knows that incredible ingredients make incredible meals. Blue Apron works with a community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and ethical ranchers to deliver perfectly portioned seasonal ingredients and easy-to-follow recipe cards right to your door. Choose recipes based on your preferences with no weekly commitment. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com slash bullseye. We're psyched you like bullseye, and if you're looking for more to listen to, check out NPR One. 
The suggestions in NPR One are hand-curated to help you find the best from public radio and beyond. News and podcasts, NPR One is ready when you are. NPR O-N-E on your app store. I'm Travis. And I'm Andy. And we host Bunker Buddies, a comedy apocalypse podcast every Wednesday on MaximumFun.org. We've got a brand new format for our podcast that we hope you want to come and check out. We try out products for your go bag. We'll try out cheddar larva and cricket bars so you don't have to. We play Would You Rather and answer questions from the audience. And we have great guests that pop into the bunker. It's everything you love about the show and more. Come check it out every Wednesday here on MaximumFun.org. Stay safe out there. There's always hope and cheesecake. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Sarah Paulson, who's nominated for an Emmy for her role as Marsha Clark in The People vs. O.J. Simpson. There's this really incredible scene in the show. I, I want to play a little bit of it. And, you know, there's uh, there's an episode in the series that's called Marsha, Marsha, Marsha mm-hmm. that is substantially about Marsha Clark. One would hope if it's called yeah. that. <laughs> um, Can you imagine if I read it and it was all about Johnny? Like, this is some kind of mine. <laughs> Mine beep. And um, Marsha Clark, uh, my guest Sarah Paulson's character, had the previous had basically stood up for herself the previous day, said that uh, she couldn't come in to she couldn't stay late because she had to go home and take she care of her kids. Care, yeah. yeah. So this is a scene. This is like the next day or a couple of days later. Uh, they're scheduling things out, um, and Johnny Cochran, who's been messing with everybody. Uh, including OJ and the people on his own team, mm-hmm. um, kind of takes advantage of that situation. The, f- the first voice that we hear is uh, uh, Judge Ito, who's who's played by Kenneth Choi, and, and Courtney B. Vance plays Johnny Cochran. Mr. Cochran, is Miss Lopez present here today? She is, Your Honor. And do you anticipate that we can hear what she has to say in one day? I would expect so, Your Honor. Barring any acts of God or further child care crises from Miss Clark. Your Honor, I am offended by Mr. Cochran's remarks as a woman and as a mother. Mr. Cochran may not know what it's like to work a 70-hour work week and also take care of a family, but I do. And many other people do, too. To belittle my child care issues in your courtroom is unconscionable and totally out of line. So it's this, it's a very powerful moment where she is asserting herself with all the, you know, strength and skill and experience that she can muster, right? Yeah. And she sort of wins. But the thing that is so gut-churning about this scene to me is not even that she would have to do that, but that even in winning, the reaction is kind of like, eh, Mm -hmm. come on. Mm -hmm. And that is directly lifted from, I mean, that actually happened. I mean, Cochran said that and she stood up and said, oh, no, you don't. And she she really let him have it uh, to, to the best of her ability within the confines of appropriate courtroom behavior when the judge is present. But, um, the idea that that would even be something, it's just to me like dirty pool. The idea that, again, these are the kinds of things that the defense were bringing forward and just m- making a mess of things. It had nothing to do with getting Rosa Lopez on the stand, you know, and um, 
it was it was Johnny vamping looking for for more time, you know, and they were just they were there was nothing off limits, including including saying something as as irresponsible as that about basically int- the intimation being that Marsha was lying, that she was using her lack of childcare as a as a way to pull heartstrings so that she could get more time to prepare to cross-examine the witness. And what's terrifying to me about it is that it is this incredible, beautiful, strong statement that, you know, the rug is pulled out from under her even then. Even in even in that victory, there is this there is this long moment that doesn't play on the radio or we would have included uh-huh. it. But there's this long kind of like uh, moment from Judge Ito and basically everyone else there that is, you know, like even in this moment of triumph, she is beset by yeah. these circumstances beyond her control. And also why would any I mean, the idea that there would be the the consequence for her emotionally to have to assert herself in that way is to me just unconscionable in a way that 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 would even be something that was part of her day that day at work. It has nothing to do with anything. Uh, it's a distraction. It's humiliating for her. She has to stand up and take a stand for her on her own behalf when, you know, there are two people who are dead. And she was trying to just keep her eye on the proverbial prize, which was to put him behind bars. And there was so much distraction. And the fact that it was so much of it was at her own personal cost to sort of expose herself. It was not easy for her in the first place to ask Ido to be let to to, to not go late because they had been told they weren't going to go late. And when all those things were happening and then they were going to go late, she had to make something known that was not going to be public uh, information. She had already planned to to take care of her her kids that night. And that was going to be. That was what had to be. And then when things shifted within the day, she had to, to make that known in front of all these men. And that was costly, too. And then to have to have to put that forth and then to have him come back with that a few days later is just it still really, really, really upsets me now just even hearing it. And I have, you know, as you know, I have not watched it, but hearing it, it just it really it makes me really angry. Has playing this role made you reevaluate? or consider your own life as a public figure. You're not a, you know, you're not a movie star, so it's not a huge part of your life, mm-hmm. but there have been times, you know, 10 years ago you kissed your girlfriend on the mm-hmm. uh, in, in the Tony Awards and not like as a s- statement, I don't no. think, as far as I can mm-hmm. tell, just because you were happy about mm-hmm. the Tony Awards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and your girlfriend was there with mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Um and more recently, your your current girlfriend is also an actress, mm-hmm. and uh, she's also like thirty years older than you. Mm-hmm. So it's like a thing on the internet, uh, like, yes. "Oh, look at these two! Yeah, look at them! Isn't that great? Mostly, that's weird. Mostly yeah. isn't that great, which is nice. Yes, it's nice, but sometimes it's like that's weird. Yeah, but I I wonder if this has led you to think about like, oh, this career that I've chosen gives me this public life that I don't always get to have control over yeah I mean I don't again like you said when that happened during the Tony Awards it was certainly not a statement it was certainly just something that was you know just living my life and because I didn't have any kind of profile really I had been working and stuff it was really not big news at all I mean no one really watches the Tony Awards right I mean I do but it's not really I don't think it was big news um but yes the circumstances of my current relationship are such that that I understand why it uh incites a little um or ignites a, a lot of interest, but I think if anything, playing Marsha has um, has made me a, a more gentle person. Um, 
in terms of how I view others and then therefore myself, you know, um, I, I'm, I had been one of those people where someone sort of mentioned a piece of gossip to me and said, well, I heard and I just know this is true. And, and I'd be like, oh, I bet it is. And oh, I'm sure she just did that. Oh, he just did that because and now I think about how many untruths were told about Marsha and how many of them became to be part of the fabric of what we knew to be true about Marsha Clark collectively uh, as a country. That, is it because they fit that story it in the same the story, way yes, that, you it know, just, it's the sort of leitmotif of the show absolutely. is Johnny Cochran saying, if we can make a story that then works. Exactly. And then they do. And it's still, it's what Donald Trump's doing now. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, there's just so much of this, like, you know, he's now calling Hillary untrustworthy. The very, the very narrative that is sort of assigned to him is she's just like, well, if I just flip it, and and there are people who will just go, oh, yeah, I believe it. I read it on in the paper, you know. And um, I was very much one of those people who was very susceptible to um, what I was being told, um, whether it was be on the news or someone's impression of someone. And now, having played this part, I do end up feeling uh, like I take more of a beat before I before I uh, pile on to some idea about something or someone. And, and I certainly think that relates to me in terms of my personal life. It's, it's a lot of people have a lot of very interesting ideas about what goes on or uh, my uh, issues. <laughs> they decide I must have some other issues or something when really nothing could be further from the truth. It's quite the opposite of that, actually. So, um, you know, Everybody, I don't know. I just it, it has made me much more capable of sort of um, having played her, having played Marsha. I do feel softer about all of it, and and much. Uh, I don't have my my finger on the trigger quite as quite as much in terms of judgment, which is new for me. <laughs> I want to play one last clip before we go, okay. and you have to go. But I want to okay. play one last clip. Okay. But I I thank God I remembered this. <laughs> uh oh. There's a video on the internet of you. Mm-hmm. Singing this Game of Thrones song. Boom, 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 Thrones, Thrones, Game of Thrones, Thrones, Game of Thrones. The whole time my wife hates me. Well, but It's going to lead to a divorce. No, she's wrong. She'll come to appreciate it one day when it's gone, when you've decided to not make it something she has to listen to. Did you put that video on the internet? I think I did. Oh, Um, you're great. I think I did. Good work. Thank you. I really made the world a better place. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Sarah Paulson, thank you so much for being on Bullseye. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah Paulson's nominated for two, one, two Emmys this year, Outstanding Supporting Actress for her role in American Horror Story Hotel and for her role as Marsha Clark in the People vs. O.J. Simpson American Crime Story. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Shuggy Otis is in his 60s now. He's touring. He's got a new record on the horizon. It wasn't always that way. He was a teenage guitar prodigy almost 50 years ago. He played guitar alongside his dad, Johnny Otis, in Johnny's R&B reviews. He wore dark glasses so the bouncers wouldn't see that he was underage. He played with Frank Zappa and Al Cooper, and his dad helped him make his first solo record at 16. Here he is playing on that record, 1970s 
Gospel Groove. A year later, Shuggy started working by himself and he found his sound. It wasn't guitar music, particularly, not guitar blues, more like introspective psychedelic soul. Shuggy's song Strawberry Letter 23 didn't hit until the Brothers Johnson covered it in the late 70s, but it was a template for a new sound for Shuggy when it came out in 1971. Shuggy holed up in a backyard studio, worked for a few years, then put out Inspiration Information. It's an album beloved by musicians and collectors and hip-hop producers, but it wasn't especially beloved by mid-1970s record buyers. He got dropped from his label, and that's sort of where it stopped for about 40 years. He played with his dad sometimes, he sent demos to labels, and he didn't get another record deal until the 21st century. Then, in the early 2000s, propelled by folks like David Byrne and Jay Dilla, his records found an audience in a new generation. Shogi Otis, it is great to have you on Bullseye. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. You know, I used to listen to your dad's radio show growing up in the Bay Area mm-hmm. um, on the weekends on public radio. And he was such a showman, a classic DJ and a guy who fronted a band, even though maybe he wasn't the world's number one greatest singer ever of all time. And it seems to me like when you were a kid... Uh, you were the opposite of that. Oh, yeah. I I pretty much was kind of like, I wasn't interested in being a, a big star or, or anything special, you know. You were playing drums as a little kid. I mean, I've seen you standing next to a drum set. The bass drum's got your name painted on it. Um, <laughs> My dad did it. Did you, <laughs> did, you think, did you think that this was something that you wanted to do with your life? Was it just so pervasive in your house that it was just kind of what was happening? You know, uh, he was having a lot of success at the time. He was playing every weekend at this club, and he had a TV show at the same time and a, and a radio show, I believe. Maybe all three going on, and he was just, like, really flying high. I got to know his band members very well, like family friends, you know. And so I would be at the rehearsals all the time because you know, he liked taking me places. And, and A good dad, very good dad, you know. He would teach me things, you know, if I was wondering. And he knew I liked drums, and he, he kind of like, you know, he, he encouraged me. But it would be a while before I would be able to do anything musically. Did you feel up to the 
that feeling that you were the star in the family and with all these folks sort of circling around yeah. you, or did that feel overwhelming to you? I, I, I just felt like a little kid that they liked. A little dumb kid, you know, and, uh, well, not that dumb. Laughing <laughs> 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 fun, and uh, my dad taught me harmony and theory on the piano. A year later, he actually uh, took me on a gig. I was supposed to play guitar, but I wound up playing the bass because the bass player didn't show up. <laughs> Did you feel like you belonged in the band? Oh, yeah. I was always accepted. I, did, I hardly ever felt any jealousy when I was young, playing with older musicians. I want to play uh, some music. This is my guest, Chuggy Otis, playing with his dad and his dad's band, The Johnny Otis Show. Um, this is from 1969, and it's called Country Girl. Great big healthy country girl. Is it? Lottie's the finest thing. Finest thing in the world. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you've ever heard the Suggy Otis album Inspiration Information, and you might have even if you don't realize it, there's this certain mysterious rhythm sound. It's hard to identify. Kind of beautiful. Coming up, I'll find out what that thing is. Suggy, when you were um, 14, 15, 16 years old, you were playing a lot of R&B and blues music. You were playing your dad's music. Yes, and at the same time, there were a lot of rock musicians discovering that music in the late 1960s. Oh, yeah. Did it feel like the music that belonged to you, or did it feel like your dad's music and you wanted to do something else? That's the kind of music that I grew up listening to, for the most part. And it, pretty much, it, it was rock and roll time. It was the beginning of rock and roll. Now, when the 60s came along and the Beatles came along, that was another thing that influenced me, very much so. I, I want to play. Uh, I want to play a track from Inspiration Information, which is your album that came out in 1974. And um, this was an album that you pretty much made yourself, right? I mean, you in a studio. Yeah. Um, this song's called "Out of My Head." drum sound yeah. uh, that comes from uh, uh, what's that drum machine called? This, the Rhythm Box or something, right? I'll tell you, this is a combination of the Rhythm King which was yeah, it was called the Rhythm King by Maestro Gibson and it's also a drum set on there and there's also some shakers When you went into the studio to record that record, Inspiration Information this was a studio in the back of your folks' house, right? No we started at 
Columbia Studios in Hollywood, California, Sunset Boulevard. They had four studios, one great big one, uh, another medium, and another smaller, and another smaller than that. Uh, that's where that album started. So got through a few basic rhythm tracks. Were you making rhythm tracks with the drums, or were you using the drum machine? Well, at that point, it was the drum machine, because... After I had recorded Strawberry Letter, you know, and played all the instruments, I guess they figured I could do it again. I was into the next album doing this at Columbia Recording Studios, playing all the instruments. And we had to stop and go on a tour with the Johnny Otis show. This was when you all had already started recording the record. I'd already started in, in early 72, starting this, uh, recording this album. I had done a few things. Not just a few little bits and pieces. There were some things that were, you know, halfway done. But I had to wait because my father got a deal to get a studio built in the backyard. We had that done in place of a cash advance. But you wanted to do it right and you wanted to do it yourself. That's all it was. That's all it was. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have been me. I would have uh, written something really crummy and maybe it... Who knows what, what what it would have done, but I... But you wanted that sound. I mean, that that is one of the things that is so special about that record, is that there are so few albums that have such a consistent and beautiful tone, you know, a sound that's so specific. Wow. Thank you. That's a, that's a great compliment. You know, when I was younger and then inspiration came out, I knew that album sounded different. But I wasn't on an ego trip about it. In fact, I didn't really think that it was going to be a big album. And when it didn't, it didn't bother me. I just wanted to get back out and start playing and start recording more, you know. I, I knew that uh, that the company wasn't really behind me when they heard that album. I I just knew it. I felt it. Let's play some more music from Inspiration Information. My, my guest, Shuggy Otis, is 1974 album. Um, this song's called Island Letter. Yeah. I'm Jesse Thorne. Imagine if you were asked by the biggest band in the world to be their new lead guitarist. And you said no thanks. After the break, my guest Shuggy Otis will tell me why on earth he did that. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message comes from Soylent, the nutritionally complete ready-to-drink meal in a bottle. And now, introducing Coffeeist, a balanced breakfast blended with lightly roasted coffee and a hint of chocolate flavor. It's an energizing morning meal too convenient to skip. And if you need another reason to feel good about squeezing breakfast into your day, for every case of Coffeeist purchased, a meal is donated to those in need through the World Food Program USA. Receive 10% off your first subscription order at Soylent.com with discount code NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. StoryCorps travels the country collecting the wit, wisdom, and poetry in the stories of everyday people. The StoryCorps podcast showcases these unscripted stories about real life, 
Listen in and discover meaning in the words of someone you might not notice walking down the street. Find the StoryCorps podcast now on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. New York City, listen up. Your fellow Max Fun listeners and hosts are gathering at Stuart Wellington's new Brooklyn bar, and you're invited. You probably know Stuart from his hilarious movie riffing on the Flophouse, but did you know he's also a small business owner? It's true. Join Stuart and a ton of new Max Fun friends at the Hinterlands Bar on Saturday, August 27th at 7 p.m. You can find more information at bit.ly slash MaxFunHinterlands. See you there. Did you think about me at all? Or just happened to hear my call? Cause I didn't get the chance to tell you that I would want to... It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is legendary guitarist and songwriter Shuggy Otis. It sounds to me, Shuggy, like part of what was going on was that you certainly had this gift as a guitar player. You know, you were you were and are a really brilliant guitar player. And you don't have to agree with me on that. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> but uh, you're you're a wonderful guitar player, but you never wanted to be the guy that that the music industry asks that guitar player to be. That that guitar player is the guy who, you know, struts out to the front of the stage and rips out a st- amazing solo and, like, sticks his tongue out and points at a hot chick in the crowd or whatever. Yeah, right? they're great showmen. And that's a wonderful thing to be. Yeah. I love entertainers. Uh, the, but, cra- the crazier, the better. I, but maybe you never were matter. that thing. Maybe you never were the guy that wanted to, you know, light your guitar on fire. Well, no. <laughs> no, no, I didn't want to do that, and I, I don't. I didn't want to be a big. I wanted to have a record deal, and I wanted to be out there showing myself. Don't get me wrong, but I didn't want to be what they wanted me to be. Which, and I, I didn't fit in with the top ten. I knew it. You know, I could have written pop music, but I would refuse to do it. I would refuse money to. Well, I did. I mean. I was asked to be with, you know, groups. I could have been rich, you know, and all that. But You turned down an offer at one point to be in the Rolling Stones when you were working on this record. Yes, that's true. And I, I was a Rolling Stones fan when I was a kid. It's kind of funny, huh? But how could you see me as uh, not just a Rolling Stone? At that point, I didn't want to be a, a sideman to anyone anymore. But I did do some gigs with my dad. That was different. I don't know. It was like being home. I, you know, I, I, I made some music back then that was uh, that fit in, but they'll never hear it, you know, because uh, they rejected it. It seems like what you wanted was uh, you wanted to make this music that you could control, 
I mean, the texture of the music is so important on these records that you made. And it seems like maybe part of that texture is you choosing to let yourself, you know, as a, you know, as a presence on the records recede a little bit. That it's about this sort of enveloping feeling more than it is about the big star, Shuggy Otis. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I'm proud of. I was able to express what I felt. That's all I want to do. It's quite a thing. I don't like to collaborate because I like to create a creation uh, and take all the credit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hear some more music from Inspiration Information. My guest, Shuggy Otis's 1974 album. Um, This song's called Sparkle City. When you um, when your record didn't sell that well, and you got dropped, did you expect that you would be able to get a new deal and start recording again? Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't blink an eye when my dad told me, uh, "Hey, they dropped you." I said, "So what? We'll get another deal next week." I swear that's exactly how I said it. <laughs> Was there was there a point after that, after you had been looking around for a deal and, you know, working with your dad who was uh, uh, spent a lot of the 70s and 80s recording R&B and blues artists, um, uh, but, you know, artists who by then were legacy artists. Was there a point where you felt like, oh, this isn't going to happen? Yeah, there was some times like that in recent years that really put me in some bad depressions, you know. Uh, But that's something in my will that I have faith in. My will will not let me give in to that. How does it feel to be on stage now compared to how it felt to be on stage when you were a very young man? Just as good... You know, uh, I'm just kind of baffled when I go to concerts and and now they they love it so much. It's overwhelming, you know, especially when I meet them and they really mean it. You talked a little bit about, um, you know, feeling a little nervous in the interview, you know, losing track a little bit from time to time. Do you feel centered when you're playing on stage or when you're recording? Like, are you able to find a a comfortable place? I love being on the stage now even more because of the audience response. But before I went on my tour, even back in 2012, I said, you know, I know it's going to be a struggle. I told myself and I said, but I'm going on with this and I'm not going to ever quit. It seems like you take a lot of happiness from putting one foot in front of the other, from getting out there and, and doing this thing that you really love to do. Yeah, because as a kid, I was shy, and I, 
you know, I'm, I, I, I don't think I'm that shy anymore. Uh, shy, shyness to me was a, a, a hindrance. And, you know, it, 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 was, it was a negative thing. Shuggy, what part of your career are you most proud of? Wow. I don't know if I've ever been asked that. Can you got an hour? (laughs) (laughs) Most proud of. The most proudest time in my life. I'm going to say is right now. Because I have everything going for me. I'm not rich. I'm not famous. I don't know where my next buck is coming from. I don't know. I have a tour. I am going to take a vacation. but And I am going to shoot for the top. I want you to know that. And everybody who wants to listen to this interview, I'm not going to stop. And I'm not going to stop experimenting with music, even if it sounds like a song you heard a hundred years ago even if it doesn't sound new it doesn't have to sound new and oh wow I never heard anything like that forget about Shuggy Otis did this just let the music come into you and bring it out and try to keep your hands held out to receive this love Shuggy Otis' seminal album, Inspiration Information, was released on Epic Records in 1974. He's currently working on songs for a new album, and he's planning a tour for 2017. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me. I'm Jesse. I host the show. We call it The Outshot. Okay, look, going to level with you. This week, I wrote this really beautiful outshot about a really amazing song that really moved me and blah, 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 blah. But I am not going to share it with you this week. Uh, This week, instead, you are getting what the Irish call the crack. Hi, lads, how are things? What's the crack? (laughs) We're in Rio. Yeah. The, the, background might, might, the background might look superimposed, but it's very real. <laughs> it is, yeah. Certainly. Is. That's all there. Lads, listen, Paul, what, what, what has the last few hours been like for you? Yeah, I've been shook enough now, to be honest, since the, the racing is a bit tired now and the legs are like jelly. But, um, yeah, I suppose we did a bit of celebrating and did the podium thing and got to put on the podium pants as well, so that was quite nice. And um, saw the, the mother and the father and... Oh, my God, that is so golden. Let's actually, let's hear that again uh, now that your ears are used to the accents. And and just for context, I just want you to imagine these two handsome young guys wearing their medals, standing on a hotel balcony, and they're on the national television network of Ireland. Hi, lads, how are things? What's the crack? <laughs> We're in Rio. Yeah. The, the, background might, might, the background might look superimposed, but it's very real. It is, yeah. <laughs> Certainly. Is. That's all there. Lads, listen, Paul, what, what, what has the last few hours been like for you? Yeah, I've been shook enough now, to be honest, since the, the racing is a bit tired now and the legs are like jelly. But, um, 
Yeah, I suppose we did a bit of celebration, did the podium thing and got to put on the podium pants as well, so that was quite nice and um, saw the, the mother and the father. And so these two guys, they're called Paul and Gary O'Donovan, they're brothers, two Irish rowers. They won a silver medal in the Olympics. And obviously, you know, the discourse around the Olympics can be pretty precious. I was precious about the Olympics a couple of weeks ago, but it's kind of hard to be precious when somebody's standing on a hotel balcony wearing a flag as a cape. I mean, come on, these guys. Can we all just marry them already? And uh, Paul, are, are you aware of what's been going on back home, back here? Because it's just been mayhem. The nation has gone, has gone rowing mad and O'Donovan mad. I heard that uh, Gary got a Snapchat there earlier and they were roaring away mad or something. And, but you know I haven't a clue what's going on, to be honest, at home. I'd say it was mad excitement altogether. It is a pity we're missing the whole thing out here. Yeah, <laughs> they're all in the pub at home and everywhere. Skibberines after closing down a national holiday or something. <laughs> we're missing it all. So crack uh, is a very Irish thing. In English, you spell it C-R-A-I-C. Basically, it's kind of halfway between banter and talking. Like a sort of what's going on type of thing mixed with let's have a good time type of thing. And these two dudes, the uh, O'Donovan brothers... They got a silver medal in lightweight double skulls. But as far as I'm concerned, they've got a gold medal in crack. That's about 10 litres water as well, so um, it's full up now, to be honest. <laughs> Gary, it's a great crack, though, anyway. Yeah, he's, us, been, he's been busy there. I was running around having a great time signing photographs and autographs and taking pictures, and it's all well and good, you know. We'll be fairly tired now. We haven't had a bite to eat since... Uh, since uh, two after hours the after the way in, we had a, a bread roll with some Nutella. And I'm fairly hungry now, but I believe they're on their way with some pizzas for us. Hey, sports are fun. Talking is fun. Now let's get those guys a pizza. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphone. Our producer is Dan Gallucci, production assistant Christian Duenas, our senior producer Colin Anderson collectively known as the Bullseye Buds. All our interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries. They made our theme music. Thanks this week to Patrick Murray at NPR West for engineering the Sarah Paulson interview and to all of our friends at NPR West for hosting us for that interview. Some folks came out and had lunch with us in the parking lot. That was nice. Thanks to Andrew Foster, Chris Berg, Ryan Tardiff, and Colin Richardson for their help finding clips for our promos. Thanks, guys. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture hosted by the hilarious and insightful comedian Guy Branham. Guy, you happen to be standing right here as I record this. What's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week we're joined by Karen Thompson to talk about travel and vacations in popular culture. Uh, we talked about lots of good stuff, like a room with a view and what our summer beach read uh, choices are. So check it out on Pop Rocket. I will. I just got back from my summer vacation. I enjoyed reading the comic book Saga. Okay, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.